I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. How's it going? Hi, Courtney. It's good. I'm pretty tired today. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, how are you? I'm also tired. Doing three days of traveling on the road was exhausting. But that's okay. I'm a bit rested and ready to talk about our midsummer wrap-up. Yes. As somebody who I like to say that I've professionally avoided this play for 10 years. Right. And then have spent the last year and a half thinking about it. It's actually kind of a bittersweet, like, chapter end in my life, it mm -hmm. feels like right now. Um, on the one hand, I have learned a lot, and I have a greater appreciation for this play. On the other hand, I still think that there are plays we could do more often than we do this one. Right. <laughs> I remember early on when we were wrapping up our Macbeth series, and we were like, ooh, let's talk about a comedy. Let's do a palate cleanser. And... Midsummer got brought up as one of those options, and it was one of those, like, well, that play, it's done so much, I don't know if I want to engage with this right now. Mm -hmm. But it was thrust upon you, and I'm really, I'm really glad that we brought it into podcast land. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's been really fun to explore more aspects of this play. Yeah, I've had more fun than I expected. I still have many feelings about this play. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. But it does it does bring up in my mind, especially going through two very different productions, mm -hmm. or rather different productions, 
how important the production aspect is. To this play. To this play. Yes. Because your opinion, and I've talked to many people about this, of how some people have preconceived notions of some of the Shakespeare plays, and it's because they saw a play that made a certain choice, and Mm -hmm. when you investigate the plays like we do, I think it opens up all these possibilities that I don't commonly see on stage or in film. Yeah. Right. And this play in particular, I think, is one where directors make choices for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll get into that. Um, so we're looking at two Midsummer Night's Dreams today. Yes. First, we'll be looking at the 1999 film version that was directed by Michael Hoffman. After that, we'll be talking about the National Theater's 2019 production directed by Nicholas Heitner. And we both agreed we want to talk about the film version first. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's dive in. Let's do it. Yeah. So in case you haven't seen or heard of this 1999 film version, let me just go through the cast because it is a star-studded cast. This is not the first 90s Shakespeare film adaptation we have seen. What was happening in the 90s in Hollywood that everyone just greenlit projects about Shakespeare and was like, just funnel a bunch of money into them. And I'm sure all of the actors were like, yes, give me some Shakespeare to work on. We have Kevin Kline as Nick Bottom, Michelle Pfeiffer as Titania, Rupert Everett as Oberon, Stanley Tucci as Puck, Callista Flockhart as Helena, Anna Friel as Hermia, Christian Bale as Demetrius, Dominic West as Lysander, David Strathern as Theseus, Sophie Marceau as Hippolyta, Roger Rees as Peter Quince, Max Wright as Robin Starveling, Gregory Ibarra as Snug, Bill Irwin as Tom Snout, Sam Rockwell as Francis Flute, Bernard Hill as Aegeus, and John Sessions as Philistrate. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Tons of names. Yes, indeed. Yeah. This is set not in Greece, but in Italy. Yes. (laughs) And the title cards read, The village of Monte Athena in Italy at the turn of the 19th century. Necklines are high. Parents are rigid. Marriage is seldom a matter of love. The good news? The bustle is in its decline, allowing for the meteoric rise of that newfangled creation, the bicycle. (laughs) Yeah. And the bicycle comes back in this film in a big way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do wonder about that title card, though, the turn of the 19th century, because I believe it's turn of the 20th century that they're actually depicting. Depicting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So it is at the turn of the 20th century. It is very Edwardian in style. And yeah, the right flyer bicycle, the two wheeled bicycle is everywhere and very influential in the action of this production. And this film has a huge opening sequence to really set the scene of the palace or the manor of the estate, I suppose, as well as the goings on of a great wedding that will be happening. Mm -hmm. We weave in and out of the kitchen. We are seeing servants setting tables and, you know, getting festivities ready. Right. So they're telegraphing Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding through the actions of all the people working at the estate. Mm -hmm. Yes. You just talked about, I think, one of the things I really appreciate about this production was that they took opportunities, the opportunity of film to show aspects of this text, things that are like happening in terms of setting. I was really impressed by the set as well as the costuming. That was one of the highlights of this film for Mm me, was the world that they created. I thought that the first scene did a really great job at also setting up Theseus as this lord who's got other stuff going on and Aegeus being a jerk of a dad. And also, um, I wrote, my note is, Sophie Marceau's being French does a huge lift of explaining like that there's a cultural difference between Hippolyta and Theseus. Yeah. And I thought, mm, leaning on like what is actually in the text, which is, is like a cultural difference that she's not of Athens is actually really helpful that like this is not like days before the wedding I might call off the wedding because you did this it's I don't understand I'm uncomfortable with this right I don't understand the world that I'm now being forced to be 
part of and part of mm-hmm. yeah yeah one thing that this kind of starts doing and it continues throughout this film and something that kind of I did not enjoy and maybe I'm just being pedant about it mm-hmm. but I felt like there were some really rough cuts of the language of the text mm. and I found that very jarring as somebody who knows this play really well yeah Yeah, I didn't notice that quite as much because you were far more familiar with the text as is written than I am. But I did notice strange or unusual cuts Mm -hmm. and things that took away from understanding what was going on. And like, like we said at the top of the movie, the opening sequence was great use of the cinematic medium. But then some of it was just, oh, I think you might just be doing this because it's a movie and you're making a movie. Mm -hmm. So... In addition to, like, the cutting and the stuff like that, I also, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I also really didn't like how they set up Hermia. This is my issue with this play and productions of this play in general. I can always tell when a director has a favorite. Mm. My gripe about this play is that very often a director or a theater, the people uh, making decisions about the production have a favorite of the three groups. And this is a play that is really well-balanced, actually. I agree. Like, if we're just going based off of line load, your leads are Bottom and then Helena. They have the most lines of this entire play. And what I find often is producers, directors like the mechanicals or they like the fairies, and they don't know what to do with the lovers to the point of disservicing the lovers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about this a lot today. With this mm-hmm. movie in particular, I felt it actually tiptoed to the point of misogyny and sexism with wh- how they chose to portray Hermia and Helena. I agree. I'm jumping forward a bit. We'll get to this. But there's a part of the lover's quarrel that yes. is, oh, mm-hmm. oh, I see. I see how you see Helena and Hermia. I see what this bit is. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, because Hermia is crying, which she is in text, you know, how now, my love, why are your cheeks so pale? How chance there was there to fade so fast? Be like for want of rain, which I could well patine them from the tempest of my eyes. Like she's supposed to be crying. She's supposed to be upset. I would say Anna Friel, Christian Bale, and Dominic West are incredibly strong at Shakespeare. And Dominic West and Christian Bale are given so much more to do. And it feels like Anna Friel is very much trapped. I agree. I found Calista Flockhart at times to be struggling against either the accent she was forced to use, which I didn't understand why she was forced to use that accent when the mechanicals could have American accents. So I was like, why is she? Yeah, it, if we're not going to have a cohesive accent amongst all the characters. Right. If this isn't part of it, then like, why is she like the one who's having to try? Right. And there are moments where I liked her, but like neither of them... Yeah, um, I could go on for a long time. I could spend a long time talking about like how the lovers are underserved. Are underserved when effort isn't put in to make them funny. Yeah. I think that Hermia and Helena both are very strong characters. And, you know, I hate the strong leading lady as some kind of idealized idealized way Mm -hmm. of representing or portraying womanhood or whatever. But both of them are very strong. They have strong wills. They go for what they want. And Hermia would not be in this situation if she wasn't feisty. She's also described as feisty. Mm -hmm. And in that first scene with Aegeus and Theseus, she's sitting kind of quietly and demurely. Mm -hmm. Helena is, Helena is most of the time just crying. Right. Which is fine. She can cry. That's a part of her emotional state in some of these moments. But that was the default. This very weak, sad, Mm -hmm. mopey Helena. And she's also the character who decides to get in the middle of this triangle between Demetrius, Lysander, and Hermia and insert herself and run away and try to force herself into a situation. And so I think that I think that you're right that there's misogyny that was put upon this play play. because of the direction. Right. This screenplay, like you said, it does not help Helena to cut up her monologue into three parts and place it in three moments over like a half an hour. Like we're with her in that moment for a long time. And I wrote a note of it really feels like why can't we sit and listen to that monologue, which is relatively short anyway. Like it's not a long monologue. It takes up a page at most. Yeah. But 
later we're going to listen to all of Bottom's Dream. So, like, what's the point in cutting up that one? Are we saying that, like, we can't sit and listen to a woman talk for five minutes or less? Yeah. Anyway. No, but it is very frustrating the way that both Helena and Hermia are treated. And we'll get to this as well later. But I also didn't care for the direction that Michelle Pfeiffer was given as to Tanya. Mm. There was just a lot of, like, weakness, like, generally placing misogynistic weak attributes to all of these to mm-hmm. all of these characters yeah that i saw i don't know if i'm just being particularly picky about it you know yeah. before we get to her though let's talk about um who i think this director's clear favorite was kevin klein oh absolutely <laughs> to the point of eye rolls i think that kevin klein is excellent in this role the mechanicals in this are really strong and bottom is really strong and this is great but they give bottom a wife which i was like i don't know if this helps or hurts um his track yeah i lean towards hurts same i i think they tried to add so much because bottom is just this director's clear favorite they tried to add a lot of complexity to him and they didn't just Mm -hmm. trust that the text is funny that if you trust kevin klein an incredible actor to do what he can do with the text there's just so much space that was unnecessary they did so much they had so much acting outside of the language, which is fine, but to the point of me just being like, get on with it, get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't need to know that Bottom has a nagging wife at home. No. I also was like, I don't need Bottom to be mocked and ridiculed by the entire town. I don't need right. him to have wine spilled on him because people think he's embarrassing and annoying. Mm-hmm. I need to, I need to fall in love with this group of uh, hardworking men, and that's it. Oh, Snug. I love Snug. <laughs> I will say. <laughs> I will say. I was just like, oh, you perfect little little creature. He, it, it's such, it is such a good Snug. <laughs> yes. To the fairies. I liked showing the fairy party. Like the, There's like this fairy pub that's happening. There's these revels. Oh, great ambiance. Great world building. Like the world building in this, in this is so good. It's nice. And... Yes. I liked, you know, that when Titania arrives, we see her train. We see these, like, vestal-looking fairies um, that are very different from the yeah. fairies that are at the pub, essentially. Right. There's a lot of, like, satyr-adjacent characters. Mm-hmm. A lo- yeah. A lot of allusions to myth. Like, mm-hmm. when we go to her bower, like, Medusa's there. Like Yeah, there are these, like, two-faced Janus fairies who have a little... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 99, so they have some sort of, like, paper mache type mask on the back of their head. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. turned around and they've got their real faces. So it was definitely Greek-inspired versus the British fairy lore. Yeah, and they showed the weather changes during uh, Forgeries of Jealousy. And, mm-hmm. like, when they arrived, like, we really see that um, when Oberon and Titania are in the same room together, like, a pond is boiling water and, like, there's all sorts of wild stuff happening. And... Maybe this is getting into some of the stuff that you didn't like about Michelle Pfeiffer's Titania. I would agree that it was kind of like one note across the board. But what I did like was that there was a balance between her anger and maybe she, she could have been pushed farther with anger. Yeah. But also that there was still this tenderness between her and Oberon. Um, and they seemed to have a very tender relationship because I think that it helped the end resolve a little bit. Yeah. And I think that... It- uh that is fair uh that the best way to solve this problematic marriage is the fact that they have tenderness towards each other i also watched this movie with my partner who isn't a shakespeare scholar and was like i don't know Mm -hmm. half of the things they're saying and i think it's probably because this film didn't allow the actors or ask the actors who very well i know they can all handle shakespeare text didn't allow them to play with the complexities of the text was very cinematic speech this is a difficult scene to direct because it is a lot of language and it is stuff like the nine men's morris is filled up with mud they did so well showing the world in other parts that they could have done more of that here right to help explain what's going on between oberon and titania because yeah it is just kind of like here are two people like talking at each other and all we get is that they're in a, dis- a, disagreement. a disagreement of some sort yeah yeah there was a switch to anger for Titania. We do get that, like, Titania is angry. Maybe, maybe like, we want more of a Galadriel, like, more powerful and terrible as the dawn yeah. moment from that. 
I think that that's what I would have wanted. Yeah. Something that really, because especially if they were telegraphing the weather conditions, the weather, the weather patterns mm-hmm. and all, you know, they certainly could have had her have more fierceness to her anger. Right. Right. What I did like, though, Rupert Everett as Oberon was not diabolically evil. I see sometimes actors and productions take him to like almost an Iago place. Mm-hmm. And Rupert Everett's Oberon is more like an Orsino, which I felt like a, for a while is true, that he's not a serious person. Mm. He's a fairy, right? Mm-hmm. He's very capricious. And he's more of a himbo who, you know, is just trying to get what he wants. And he's pulling some kind of, you know, hijinks. Mm-hmm. It's a rather low stakes hijinks. He's not, you know, plotting to murder. He's, But he is like, I'm going to play a prank because I want to get what I want. Yeah. And like, it feels very similar to like, well, I'm just going to keep asking Olivia out until she says yes. Yeah. And they did a really great job yeah. of portraying that himbo because he's like dressed like a Greek god and he's like lounging about. He's very casual about everything. He's like ordering Puck to do this and that. But it's... There's not like thought behind it. Yeah. It's like I have the thought and then I have the next thought and I'm not like sitting and plotting and he's not like an evil mastermind. Mm-hmm. I also appreciated when we got to Titania's Bower that some of the servants we saw in the intro came back and yeah. they were fairies that were stealing item human items um, to decorate the Bower. Yeah, I also like that. I thought it was a fun tie-in. It tied in Athens, the world of Athens, mm-hmm. to the world of fairyland. Very clever. I am going to say I didn't like Stanley Tucci's puck. Really? No, I don't need Puck to be like, he, 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 you know, you know, kind of mischievous. No, I don't want, I don't want that, actually. But he was too calm. He was too, like, he seemed like he was just going along with it. And it was, and it wasn't like he was having any fun. I love a lazy Puck. Mm. So I love a, I'll put a girdle around the earth in 40 minutes and not leaving joke. Sure. And then going, oh, now? Yeah. Okay. Which I felt like I saw Stanley Tucci clearly does, but then um, that wasn't always consistent. Like, I think his puck wasn't necessarily consistent. I don't love a, like, I call it mosquito puck. Mm. We see a lot of people in crouched positions with, like, playing with sharp angles and giggling and um, puck doing it all for the purpose of making mischief. And I don't find that in the text. I find actually that puck makes repeated mistakes and kind of lucks into things being funny. Mm. I found that Stanley, that like the puck was maybe underserved. Yeah. You know, there were moments where Stanley Tucci shone for me. And then there were moments where it just didn't feel like a clear take on puck. I didn't feel like we got much of the Oberon puck. We could have spent time establishing the Oberon and puck relationship on camera a little bit more well and especially yeah. because there were moments where he was very very playful with like the bike uh, yeah yeah but he would have those kinds of moments mm-hmm. and i also i don't think that you have to okay, if you're going to make them have this kind of not totally codependent relationship mm-hmm. establish it a little more like puck's just kind of doing his thing and then brought into this and then you know right it's just i think that you're right I think there was no through line with their relationship, and, and I just didn't enjoy it very much. Right. Again, I was like, this director loves Bottom and Titania. Like, that's the story that they wanted to tell. Yeah. Because the cuts for Bottom and Titania's scene were so much clearer and less clunky than others, and I found the choices to be really solid. I really like Titania Bottom in this. This is fun and clear what this is, what is happening here. Yeah. I like them as well. I like the sincerity of Michelle Pfeiffer's Titania and Bottom. And we spent a whole episode talking about degradation and there wasn't a lot of, at least I didn't see Mm -hmm. it being like degradation for Titania. It was, you know, this is how she wants to be loved. Right. So she's going to love this way to Bottom. And yes, they were, Mm -hmm. they were very sweet. I would say this is also a world where, like, the second half of this film gets horny fast. Mm. Like, essentially from, like, the lover's fight onward. 
the characters just become, especially the fairies become a little bit more, I found them to be like a little bit more, everything becomes a little bit sexier for a minute. Yeah. Well, I am now, as you're saying that, remembering when Bottom has uh, been recostumed into mm-hmm. fairyland garb and there's this like procession to the bower and then Bottom gets a, you know, a boner and everyone's like, ooh. Mm-hmm. And Tanya likes that, and all the other fairies are kind of giggling, and so. Yeah, and the fairy world is a, like, semi-erotic world in this film. Like, it's very, like, normalized for there to be topless nudity. Yeah, and that's also a nice contrast to the Edwardian Athens, which is all buttoned up. Yeah. So I love that the uh, servants in Athens came back and were fairies, but I did not like the hill mortal bit. It felt very colonizer to me that this outsider brought the music in and taught them how to use the music for real. Ooh. Like the fairies had no idea that they could just crank the phonograph and just get music going. It was it was being used as a piece to like a vase to decorate with flowers. Because this production is vastly white, I didn't pick up on that as like a ooh colonizer moment, but I did go... It is a moment, again, of, like, building up Bottom to be something that he's not necessarily and, like, giving just more to Bottom. So, like, oh, now Bottom's this... I don't know if this lands because Bottom's not some genius, you know? Right. Yeah. And I guess by saying colonizer stuff, you know, I don't equate it to colonization. Yeah. But this is kind of like, oh, we're going to teach the partially nude, ethereal, woodsy others how music technology works how technology works and they also had you know they showed the changeling child in all blue body paint as vishnu so oh yeah that that to me i found the child to be the most problematic yeah thing i didn't like that i did not like that choice but for me that was very separate from the introducing technology to me that was just like we don't need to like set up bottom as like oh the fairies just also find him to be a genius yeah so I just want to be clear, it's definitely not a comparison of the actual real-world colonization. Yeah, yeah. It's just that this thing was like, oh, someone teaching someone else how technology mm-hmm. works. Yeah. But anyway, enough of that. Then we get to the fight. <sighs> and the fight is not a fight. No. Hermia and Helena don't really fight with each other until it becomes mud wrestling in their underwear, Edwardian yeah. underwear. And at that moment, I went, this is the male gaze. <laughs> at work this is the only way that you can think of that two women can Mm -hmm. fight it doesn't really work with the text and it feels gross it does feel gross i wish hermia was fiercer in this moment she didn't get to be that fierce and neither did helena and you mentioned hermia is very fierce when i've worked on this play the last time i worked on it a note that i kept giving was Hermia is a grenade. She is a vixen. She is fierce. She might be nice on the outside, but if you wrong her, this scene is life and death for everyone involved. Yeah, the stakes are really high. The stakes should be high. And what is scary about Hermia is that we don't know what she'll do. Yeah. And then when she does tell us what she's going to do, she's going to claw out someone's eyes. Right. And... If we're just standing there going, oh, me, oh my. you juggler, mm-hmm. you canker. Thief of love. You know, the stakes aren't high enough. Yeah. So like for the amount of threat that like everyone else is talking about, we don't get that. Yeah. And then it just becomes mud wrestling. And yeah, really gross. I wrote in my notes. No, thank you. I don't really have much more to say until um, everything is resolved because I liked how Titania was woken up and the conversation that was had. And again, like that, like return to tenderness. We also completely lose the thread of like, I stole her changeling child from her. But I wrote, this is a very horny Oberon and Titania, mm-hmm. like when she wakes up. And then we have some naked lovers in the morning. Yeah, we do. I thought that was, you know, fine and silly, I suppose. They're found indecently. Mm-hmm. But I was mad that they didn't get to explain their dream. That was cut. Mm-hmm. I did like Hippolyta being in on the decision-making process with Theseus. Yes, I have that. That's my next big note. I have wanted to see that 
for so long. I like giving her more language, especially when you cut the earlier part of that scene down, because a lot of the earlier part of that scene is establishing that like they Mm -hmm. are talking. And if you're going to cut that for her to still be mad, then uh, giving her but soft what nymphs are that she's the one who discovers them. And then that Theseus and Hippolyta like go off and have some sort of conversation before he says, fair lovers, you're fortunately met. Yeah. And then invites everyone to have a triple wedding. And it very much seems like she has pulled him aside and basically been like, our wedding will be back on if they can get married with us. And then you kind of see him like make the decision to go with her. But to me, that worked. Oh, just a note. Lysander had the second flower put into his eye, but Demetrius did not. Correct. That's what this one landed. And then we get to see, I think, the best example of like what often we can't see in the theater. As they're talking about the other productions, we get to see them. The background Mm. and the mechanicals are just kind of like sitting there in like their street clothes and everybody else is like ready for performance and they're just sitting there. Yeah. They're holding their breath to see if they will get selected. Yeah, very outside of their league. Yeah. And I just had, I really enjoyed the play within a play. I also enjoyed the play within a play. I wrote that there were a lot of fun gags with this play within a play and I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. I love a very gag heavy play within a play. My thought about play within a play is that it should be... Here are people who are earnestly trying to do a good job, but they are so outside of their league with what they're doing that things go wrong and then they and try then to they and have the, to adapt. And they have to adapt and the comedy is like in how they adapt. Yeah. For example, like the decision to have an a person play moonshine happens in the moment. Um they cut the line from earlier in the scene of having some man or other. Um and so they have starling go to the casement window open it and it's bricked up and so he is improvising like uh here's a lantern and here's a dog and here's a bush yeah he's got a cigarette sticking out of his mouth and he uses that cigarette to light the the lantern yeah my favorite thing was i was so happy they let this be act seriously i know everyone is earnest but I think a lot of the time, I think the actor playing bottom mm-hmm. is given more opportunity while still being quite silly and amateur, you know, to have a moment. Have a moment where he transcends that. And yeah, basically, once bottom is dead, Thisbe's coming out and everybody's just roaring with laughter. And Thisbe actually turns this into a t- true tragedy. And uh, the lovers and Theseus and Hippolyta are crying. Yeah. And, like it's Thisbe's performance that makes it. An excellent piece of theater. An excellent piece of theater. Yeah. And you, yeah, you can't really beat Sam Rockwell. (laughs) So good. In that part. So good. I think. So all in all, like, I would say watch this one. It is enjoyable. It's not perfect, but. No, I, I also think watch it. I think it's a really good example for high schoolers, Mm -hmm. college students, something that's enjoyable. My big beef was with some of the direction in terms of stilting actors and mm-hmm. the potential for the characters. And also, there wasn't a very good through line between all three groups, which was a disappointment. Yeah, to me, the, the weakest thing is the screenplay. Yeah. But if you take apart moments from this particular film, there are some really great moments. I think it's a good representation of Midsummer. It just... Or there's, there's plenty to steal in here. For a production of Midsummer, if you are trying to come up with bits for your mechanicals or, yeah. you know, an alternative take on Fairyland. ways to consider portraying Oberon, things like that. So, yeah, overall, a watch. This gets a watch from us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shall we talk about National Theater 2019? Let's do it. Okay. So, um, the National Theater's 2019 production was directed by Nicholas Heitner. And notably features Gwendolyn Christie as Hippolyta and Titania and Oliver Chris. Um, He plays Theseus and Oberon. Also in the cast are David Morst as Philistrate and Puck, Isis Hainsworth as Hermia, Tessa Bonham-Jones as Helena, Paul Adiefa as Demetrius, Kit Young as Lysander, Kevin McMonagall as Aegeus, Felicity Montague as Quince, Hamid Animation as Bottom, 
Jermaine Freeman as Flute, Ami Metcalf as Snout, Jamie Rose Monk as Snug, Francis Lovehall as Starveling, and then some fairies. An excellent acrobatic cast of fairies. Yes. A very talented cast of fairies. And athletic. Yes. <sighs> okay. I'm going to say this at the top of this production. I feel like this was a lot of fun to see live in person. And so maybe some things did not translate to a filmed version of this production. That's my caveat. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There were a lot of moments where I was like, let's move along, let's move along. But it looked like it was a lot of fun to be an audience member. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this particular production was closed due to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. I will say, at the top, I really did enjoy this midsummer. I liked a lot of the choices that they made. Mm. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Okay. The play starts very somber. Yes. Athens is not a good place for women. No. Uh, it started out with Hippolyta dressed as a Puritan in a glass box on display. I didn't get Puritan. I got none. It wasn't. It wasn't fully Puritan. It, I would say Athens as a whole in this production, not clear what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the actual location is kind of unclear, but I would say that the general vibe is that it's Puritan in a way. It's maybe like nun-like in a way. Maybe the costuming could have done better. But what I really liked is I liked the through line from the top to the bottom of Hippolyta and Theseus's journey. Which reminded me of, and we'll get into it, but yeah. it reminded mm -hmm. me of some of the research that we did on the myths episode about the complexities that you can bring into these two characters who have a very troubling introduction. Mm. Yes, I think I think I'm, I'm going to talk about what you're getting at. Of this one really leans into what happens when we double cast Hippolyta, Titania, Theseus, Oberon, Puck, Philostrate, and are these the same individuals? Right. I really liked that through line. I was not a giant fan of the lovers. I no. This was another one where I was yeah. like, okay, so our, our favorites, favorites are, are Hippolyta yeah. Bottom. Yeah. And Titania Bottom. bottom yeah. And then we're doing some interesting stuff with Oberon, Theseus, Hippolyta, Titania. Yeah, yeah. But we don't really care about making anything else make sense or be interesting. But I like that Athens started as a very dark place and it had a journey. I hear that. I did not find it to be a journey. I found it to be inconsistent. Mm. And I felt like it muddied a lot of what they were trying to do by making it so severe at the beginning. Like, like Hippolyta is literally in a cell, very much playing into the political prisoner, but she's not free. No. And there's no love between the two of them. And... Hippolyta is the one who gives us the first inkling that these are the same people and that she appears to have some magic and influence over that scene, even though she is silent, which I thought was cool. Yeah. And there was this like twinkling sound effect that was supposed mm -hmm. to indicate that there was some magic in Hippolyta, who then becomes Titania. Yes. Right. And the world we start in does not feel like the world that the wedding's in at all. It's not. No, it's not. And I found that the only reason for costuming people in the way that they costumed people was to cover Gwendolyn Christie's hair and costume for Titania under Hippolyta mm. to be able to underdress Titania and Oberon underneath the clothes for Hippolyta and Theseus. Interesting. It seemed like a technical choice, which is a valid choice. But for the entirety of 1-1, I was like, did you know that this is a comedy? Because this is not not we're not finding any opportunities for humor at all and no. it's very severe and it is. i was i was not a big fan interesting the lovers were really underserved by this choice because they were stuck hermie and helena were wearing versions of what hippolyta also, was wearing and then the boys are in suits like again it's like either this world is really bad for women and like we shouldn't be doing a comedy or this world is what it is at the end, which is fine for women, apparently. Well, so what I read with this was it was kind of Handmaid's Tale-esque, maybe leaning into that being a TV show that just recently came out. And I guess it's mm -hmm. 
it's really difficult to discuss this particular production moment by moment because of the through line. But what I saw was yeah. Hippolyta has some sort of influence over Athens and double casting Hippolyta Titania, Theseus Oberon. What ended up happening in Fairyland is they're obviously revealed through a costume change on stage to be the same people. And during the forgeries of jealousy's speech, at one moment, Oberon, Oberon. takes over part of that speech and speaks yeah. lines about the votress. And so then he assumes the role of Titania by being enchanted by Titania. So what I saw was, if we accept that the fairy king and queen are the same as Hippolyta and Theseus, mm -hmm. Hippolyta used yeah. fairyland to degrade Theseus. And I don't think that this is necessarily the most successful, or it can be muddy. Like you said, it's muddy is more what it is. It's very, it's very muddy. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the play, Theseus has been changed because he has been degraded. So it was a role reversal. The world just doesn't make sense. Like it to me, it was like, yeah, this production is notable that Titania takes Oberon's language for the majority of the show. And Oberon takes Titania's language and Titania's track to be enchanted with bottom. And it's very much constructed to be Theseus's dream, which I was like, this is very interesting. I think what I particularly have an issue with is like, there was no reason for this costume other to cover this change. Sure, and I okay. felt like I felt like it put us into this very dark place that the lovers never got to leave. Oh, sure. Like Fair. there's not enough at the end for us to understand because it's a huge leap that's made. So you're saying, which I think I understand, is that they sacrificed the journey of the lovers or the story of the lovers for this inversion of Hippolyta and Theseus for Theseus's dream. Yes. I think yes. And I don't think that that's a necessary choice to make. But it's, again, not treating the lovers as a comedic plot the entire time. Right. What, what I liked about the switch was that we had to hear the forgeries of jealousy speech with mm -hmm. anger. But I also went, is this also sexist, though? That, like, when it is a man saying these lines, this character saying them gets to be angry mm. and gets to express rage. And then when the character who is plotting and scheming is a woman it's ooh, ooh, ooh! i have this idea why do we struggle with that when the gender casting is not switched hmm. so for me i was like like this is really successful at showing me like yes this is what the character is actually doing and saying but like it unearths this like sexism why don't we allow women to be mad sure and men to be Vulnerable ridiculous and very ridiculous and silly on stage so, so is this more for you and i don't mean to put words in your mouth was this more of like an opening up of the production history of midsummer or here's a thought why did it have to be titania who was queen of the fairies with just oberon's language why couldn't gwendolyn be oberon mm. mm -hmm. and oliver be titania that's also fair that's like where i go i'm like this makes an interesting conundrum of like one Casting this along traditional gender constructs puts us in these worlds where oftentimes, because of sexism, we don't allow these characters to be full rage or we don't allow men to be like petulant and impetuous with scheming. So my question is, why don't we have more productions where gender doesn't stop us or slow us from representing these characters this way? And then additionally, like, why did we have to still make Gwendolyn Titania? Are Oberon and Titania gendered names for us? Is, I think, the question that I'm getting at. I think that's a really good question because when I watched this, what was on my mind was not what you're talking about. What was on my mind was like, oh, this is a model of or or an experiment, I guess. This play was very experimental. So it was an experiment in let's degrade Theseus so that when we get to the end, Theseus has changed. But within that, I do see where you're opening all these questions up. And yeah, you know. Yes. But like, why wasn't he just Titania then? To begin with, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose that would be because Theseus is the one that starts off as the Duke who has this prisoner of war wife. But in his dream, why can't he be like, why can't we push it further? Why can't we go that extra step? In his dream, he's Titania. So rather than having them start out traditional and switch, Theseus becomes Titania from the beginning. Theseus is just called Titania. That makes sense. Like, why not? I think they were trying to, ooh, you know, I think they were trying to surprise people. Mm. But I see what you're saying, and I completely understand that. Because it was confusing for me. I was sitting and watching it, and I was like, okay, uh, so Theseus is Oberon. I expected that. 
Yeah. Hippolyta is Titania. I expected that. And they were saying their lines according to their assigned language. As 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 we're used to seeing. And, and then, then they swapped midway through and I was confused. I was like, what? I was completely taken aback by that. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. Just have Theseus wake up as Titania. I came in knowing that they did this switch. So I went, well, why couldn't we push this? Why couldn't we have Oliver Chris saying, what, jealous Oberon? Fairy Skip hence. I have forsworn her betting company. Right. If we're going to give them that language anyway, like, why not just do it from the top of the and I, maybe it is that like, oh, we're going to set this up so that people come in and think that they're seeing this traditional casting. Yeah, traditional double casting. And then we're going to do a switcheroo in the middle of this scene. And that's fine. I just, I just go, well, what, what could we have done if we did it from like the beginning? Well, I see what you're saying, especially considering when we were watching the OSF King John and the casting was female and non-binary actors. Mm-hmm. But the question was, okay, why couldn't we have actually also gender-swapped the costuming of the characters themselves? Everyone playing a male-assigned character was dressed masculine. Everyone playing a female-assigned character, in terms of Shakespeare's play, was still dressed feminine. So mm-hmm. yeah, why couldn't we have played more? Why couldn't we see what happens when you, you know, uh, have King John actually in a dress, or both dress and pants? Does, does this character have to default male? Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying, and I completely understand. That makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. I think that what this production did very successfully for me was I liked Hippolyta degrading Theseus. Mm-hmm. Yes. I really enjoyed that he was the one who had to go through the bottom situation. Yeah. That through line was mostly successful for me. Yeah. There were a few things that I went, does this tiptoe into something that's not intended, though? Overall, this just feels like three very different productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, though. And I would say that I agree with that as well. I thought that the lovers were really dark. There wasn't a lot of comedy for them. They just felt like they were in a completely different play. Like, once Bottom was with Oberon, the Mechanicals and Oberon, Titania, Hippolyta, Theseus felt like they were in at least, like, a neighboring world. And I think this is what I was getting to earlier of, like, the choices to make Athens so dark and leave the lovers there for the entire time, they're not experiencing the same forest that everyone else is. Yeah. We don't really see them being, like, I really wasn't getting, like, love from any of them. And it's because they put it in so much danger. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Once the lovers entered the forest, they should have ended up in the exact same world as the fairy king and queen Bottom. Bottom. Yeah. That's completely fair. I will say, one thing I did like about the lovers is I liked that they didn't steer Helena and Hermia into, like, weak, demure characters. I thought they were very headstrong. I didn't find them fierce enough. Really? No. That's fine. Well, I think I'm also thinking of them as a contrast to the film that we watched. Mm-hmm. And again, this is this is me going, like, it, it felt safe. Mm. Which is a contrast to the film, which felt like not even letting women fight. There was yeah. still a very mild fight. I was disappointed by, um, what is the line? I did this as a monologue, and I can't remember the, um, I'm not so sure, but that my My nails eyes, can reach in, But reach that my nails can eyes. reach into thine eyes. I was expecting for her to go flying. Which I think, Which yeah. I've seen before, and it really works. Hermia flying at Helena, and the boys having to hold on to her and, like, control her as she's mm-hmm. really going after helena is super effective they didn't do that yeah i just i went where is fierce hermia the lovers feel like they're in a different play i liked that the flower got used in the. this is something that like i that i actually liked was that puck and titania were as they were watching the fight they were using the flower to um like kind of break up the fight a little bit and introduce a little bit of prank quality which i have seen done before of like this scene is life and death it is an exhausting scene and so having puck and oberon puck in this case puck and titania interfere in some way right really works um in this case they chose to have them um at key moments magic both hermia and helena to be Mm -hmm. in love with each other for a moment and then Lysander and Demetrius to be in love with each other for a moment and then break it up yeah break up yeah and that like there was a difference between like holding a flower over a mortal and like juicing the flower 
yeah, it showed the intensity of the love and idleness. I think that that idea could be very effective in a production where there was more humor and levity to the lovers. Mm -hmm. But like, especially with how serious the lovers were, this scene is life or death, even when they're hilarious earlier in the play. If they are this serious up until this, this should have been way, way more intense of a fight because their lives are so serious. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that they could have taken it much further. Yeah. Introducing the flower. Also, I had a question of like, if they're all charmed, why does only Lysander get cured? And they do kind of hint at this at the end. Hermie and Helena still have have a thing for each other, which I was like, great. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But there were moments where I was like, ah, but does this also get a little bit male gazy that like when the two women are kissing, it seems to be for the man to watch. They did have some blocking where, yeah, Demetrius and Lysander are just staring fixated and they could have, you know, leaned into the, not the male gazy stuff, but they should have been more open to Demetrius and Lysander as uh, intimate partners as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that like Lysander was completely cured of everything. There were moments where I was like, this play is adding some like really fun queer undertones But then there were moments where I was like, and now we've tiptoed into homophobia. That like rejecting that becomes homophobic. Yeah. I have a note. Oberon and Bottom are the production I want to see. I don't care about the lovers at all. I loved Oberon Bottom. That was very fun. I also loved that like when Oberon was released from the charm, they broke up a line to allow that character who's been tricked, who's been, I'm going to say potentially degraded. To find it funny. Oberon and Titania laughed. And that was a nice moment. And then that made the new and Amity line. It was like, yes, you have made up because like clearly the partner who was tricked went, all right, you got me good. Yeah. It was as if this was a part of their history as a couple. This had been done before, maybe. Yes. And then uh, we go back to Athens and not much has changed and Hippolyta like you said like reminds Theseus of the night and then like Theseus has this moment of like oh no like I'm now afraid of Hippolyta or at least that's what I read of like I'm afraid and then makes the decision and yeah and then we have a massive costume change to go into the wedding I think that's where maybe I got hung up of like I didn't see it as like a growth of Theseus I saw it as a I got blackmailed about my night with a male lover mm. because it because at least it, it appeared mm. to be fear um, that caused him to respect Hippolyta and make the choices to allow the lovers to wed and what does that say if we're making it a queer relationship and I didn't see that I don't but I also don't remember this scene at all so <laughs> I'll take your word for it <laughs> Yeah. At some point, I also wasn't sure if what had happened in the forest was real or not. Because the set had so much emphasis on them, at least the lovers, walking on beds. Mm -hmm. Beds are set pieces to some very large degree that uh, I was also unsure if Apollo had just concocted this uh, dream. Massive dream world. That everyone was a part of. And then the dream Mm -hmm. was to set everyone right. But you are correct that even if it's just a dream, if Theseus feels, like you said, threatened 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 because of a relationship that he wouldn't have had otherwise, a uh, homosexual or homoerotic relationship, then it can be very... uh, Is this homophobic? Homophobic. As if you're closeted or or as if Mm -hmm. you did something without your consent and now it's being used against you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, again, liked the play within a play. I also liked the play within a play. There was a lot of similarities between this and the, and the 1999 movie of like we got to see mm-hmm. some of the other performers. It was like a Britain's Got Talent, though, sort of situation. The Mechanicals did a really fun uh, movement piece to the prologue, which was fun. Starling's Moonshine was hilarious using a uh, a large flashlight to be the lantern and blinding everyone. Yes. And then when the blood was introduced using the uh, red gel light filter, yeah, 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 to try to make the napkin red, yeah, 
the mantle yeah red and then like moonshine has like this electronic dog toy and electronic like christmas decoration as the bush and then bottom has a light up sword and that makes noise and at one point like they just all start going off and (laughs) like and i i I wrote i wish there was more of this energy throughout the play like i wish this was the play i was watching because that felt like oberon that felt like Mm. the fairies it didn't feel like athens and it was an interactive pyramus and thisbe which was really fun it was very funny, yeah. Where I get, like, this was real was that there was a moment of recognition between Theseus and Bottom. So if you're going to play that, then are we blackmailing the relationship that happened, that actually happened, even though we're only remembering it as a dream? We all got up out of bed and did share something if we're both recognizing each other. And if the lovers are still gay for each other. Yeah, I have to rewatch that scene that you're mentioning because I didn't notice any sort of, like, I don't know, maybe I was writing a note when that happened. Mm -hmm. But I didn't notice that. And if that is the case, then it does change the ending. So I'm going to go on record and say I have to go back and can check that to see. Because when I was watching the remainder of it, I noticed Theseus enjoying life much more. Yes. While he was watching the play, he was being affected by the play. He was having a good time. And he and Apollo seemed to like each other now. He didn't seem to have a problem with anything. He, you know, he very well might have been blackmailed. And then at the same time, he also seemed like a much happier, enthusiastic, ready-to-live-life Theseus than the Theseus we saw at the top yeah. of the play. So that's where my reading of what that was veered from yours, especially if I didn't see the moment you're talking about. Like, I don't disagree with that. I think what I am hung up on is if these are the same people, then that scene where we find the love, where Theseus and Hippolyta find the lovers, we need to see change Theseus already. Ah. Instead of seeing we're still where we where you left us. Instead of having Hippolyta wave her hand and remind Theseus of everything he went through. I see what you're saying. This makes this entire thing... Feel like he hasn't woken up from this dream changed. Because if Oberon is Theseus, then once the two lovers, Oberon and Titania, laugh and have a jolly good time about the prank and go off and travel around the world, he should already be there. Yes. I see what you're saying. Yes, exactly. If we have such a good resolve between Oberon and Titania, and these are the same people because we've established that in Athens, Hippolyta has magic. Hippolyta is Titania. Therefore, Theseus is Oberon, right? Then this would have already... Then the people we need to see in... That scene, the wake-up scene are... I see what you're saying. And yeah. And, and I so, agree with that, yeah. And that's where I'm like, where we start with Athens, if, then if we keep pulling that thread, where we start with Athens isn't helpful at all yeah you know what i think would have been really interesting is you know i completely see your costuming hang-ups you say but they're very fair criticisms i think what would have been really interesting and more effective for this particular production which i enjoy this production uh i feel like there were a lot of really positive things that happened from it but i am seeing what you're i am seeing what you're saying if we do start off more severe in the beginning, mm-hmm. then once everyone is in fairyland, they become lighter and lighter mm-hmm. so that the lovers end up in something closer to fairyland. And Theseus awakes and still has fairyland in his heart. Mm-hmm. And then that would have made that ending, the wedding and the light colored costumes, makes sense. Makes sense. One more. <laughs> One more gripe about this like costuming piece. Okay. The mechanicals also live in Athens. They don't seem to live in the same Athens that the lovers and Theseus and Hippolyta do. Because they have brightly colored jumpsuits. Right. They're all in bright colored jumpsuits. You're right. So that's where I've gotten very hung up on like what... What world even is Athens? What is this? It's very clear to me that there was a lot of thought put into Oberon and Titania and this choice to switch them, which was, I felt really fun. It works. And then it feels like the choice was made like, okay, well, we need to like cover hair with a headscarf and we need to cover the green Titania dress. And then so I think my question is like, why do the lovers have to live in that world as well? Like, why can't the lovers be Mm. in between the mechanicals? And so because clearly whatever fashion rules apply to the 
to Hermia and Helena do not apply to the femme-presenting members of the Mechanicals, except for Mistress Quince. I think you're right in that so much thought went into certain elements, which ended up being exciting or fun or interesting in a play that maybe usually doesn't explore what happens when Hippolyta is the one degrading Theseus or when it's Theseus's dream. But you have to take care of all three groups and make them make sense in this world. Yes. You can't, like you said, choose favorites like they did. Yeah, like I said, the favorites often happen to be, I have this great idea for Titania and Theseus, not necessarily switching them, but like, this is who they should be. This is what their concept is. This is what I have the concept of the fairies. And then it's like, okay, well, if those are the fairies, you need to extrapolate that out to the lovers and to the mechanicals or oh i have this great idea for what the mechanicals are going to be okay well if those are mechanicals if those are working class people in the same city as the lovers who are presumably of higher class what does that look like i'm very pedantic about this i guess but it is my big big pet peeve it is the reason why i have so much trouble seeing productions of this play this play can be a big victim of bumper sticker shakespeare of i have a concept or the consequences of applying that concept with this. If we're going to have a queer couple at the center, how do we make sure that we're not making choices that can be perceived as homophobic? That's my soapbox for this play is like when we do this play, every single aspect has to be considered. And so often it's not. Right. I think that's true for this particular production. And when I was watching this, I didn't notice because again, like I said, I didn't notice that potential blackmail. But when Theseus and Bottom saw each other, it didn't read to me as they were appalled by each other. It was just like, uh, oh, I know you. Yeah. But you are right that there's so much potential for things to go wrong, especially like sexism, homophobia, racism, anything mm -hmm. like that, as you play with the characters being non-traditionally cast. And I was really thoroughly enjoying the acting <laughs> and... Yeah. And oh, yeah. missed some of those things. So thank you for bringing them up. You've also been living in this play for a whole year or so. But I do want to say that the acting in this is incredible. But I think what you're saying is super valid. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to go back and watch this because in my eyes right now, as I'm thinking in retrospect, I think that this particular production was a fantastic experiment in the potential for this play but certainly fell short on some very important concept pieces. Yeah. So I was disappointed for a company that I think has done gender swapping characters or taking uh, language from characters and putting it to other characters. Well, you know, we really enjoyed their Twelfth Night. I just felt like there were moments where I was like, this was not as well thought out as that production. But this is also a very complicated production when you have three equally weighted plots that you have to braid together. And I think people don't see it as complicated, and it is very complicated. I think you're absolutely right. And this play is a theater favorite because it gets butts in the seats and because people generally enjoy the goings-on Athens and Fairyland. I think that maybe, just like Hamlet, just because it's popular doesn't mean you should be doing it over and over again if we're not going to think through all of the choices, all of the three casts of characters, and making sure that everyone is in the same world together. Because I think that between both this production and the film, there were problems that I also saw with through lines. So I think that is a common trend that needs to be taken into consideration when doing Midsummer. Mm -hmm. In addition to the through lines, there are also implications that come up when you do this play. Especially because the text itself is quite dangerous, I would say. We are faced with some really uncomfortable relationships. Mm -hmm. And if you don't take care, and especially as you start exploring different potentials for these plays, there's so much room for disaster because, you know, everyone, every theater maker, mm -hmm. I think, is unlearning biases and, and their own stuff. So, you know, you need to be super thoughtful, super careful. And that's what I have to say because as we've learned from our series... There are so many intricate elements to opening this play. And if mm -hmm. you're going to attempt that, my gosh, like you need, uh, I don't know who is in the room during the casting and the conception of this production, but I think it speaks to the fact that you need far more experiences in the room than just 
probably who I assume was working on this production. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. I Yeah, I don't know if I would recommend this one for somebody who wants to watch A Midsummer for the first time. I'd recommend this one maybe to somebody who's done Midsummer a lot, who's very familiar with Midsummer, because what's interesting about this production is the Oberon Titania change. Right, which was their central focus. Yeah. Yeah. I would give this a strong watch for acting because I liked the acting in this. Mm-hmm. I also recommend this for people who are familiar with Midsummer because I think if you're used to seeing Midsummer done traditionally, I think people can learn from the potential of that. What can I add to Midsummer conversation? And this is, I think, highlighting some things that are very effective theater choices. And also, as you discussed, it's also highlighting some more careless choices that need to be considered. So I think that there is a benefit to watching it and being like, what worked? What didn't? Why didn't it work? And how do we move forward making more interesting Midsummers with this as a case study? Right. And with that, we're done with Midsummer. Yeah. And the dogs are also done with Midsummer. The dogs are. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Coriolanus, Act 4, Scene 7, said by Ophidius. Yet in his nature that's no changeling, and I must excuse what cannot be amended.